Thanks, Vicki. Thanks, ladies, for being here for those great praises. Welcome to Women in the Word. I hope all of you had a wonderful Easter. Wasn't it nice for it to be warm for a change? It was so um, delightful to me standing out in the great room for all those mini services to watch the little girls come in in their beautiful little Easter dresses. And they were all so um, excited to be dressed up. And this was the first Easter in a long, long time that they weren't all turning purple and shivering in those cute little dresses, you know. Even little girls are determined to wear their Easter dresses no matter what the temperature is. So it was great for it to be Warm. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. You may want to go ahead and turn there with me. And you should have outlines and verses. I was pregnant with my very first child in 1978. Now that was... Uh, sonogram technology existed back then, but it wasn't used in um, pregnancies like it is now. There was no routine appointment at 20 weeks to find out, like there is now. Everyone has their sonogram appointment. And if you want to find out whether it's a boy or a girl, you have that opportunity. But back in the day, ladies, we simply waited in the dark to find out what we were going to have. And because we didn't know, we prepared in pretty generic ways. Almost everyone had a yellow nursery. If you were really edgy, you went green. Now, that was... uh, That was really kind of being out there, was having a green nursery. Now, there were a few who used the very scientific wedding ring test. That's where you suspended a wedding ring on a a string and then held it over the pregnant belly. And if it went back and forth, I think it was a girl. If it went in a circle, it was a boy. There were a few that relied on that. And then they um, could do pink or blue, depending on the scientific wedding ring test. I decided that as I waited... I was going to use primary colors, which was kind of a unique thing back then uh, for a nursery. So it didn't matter if if it was a boy or a girl. But for some reason, I had this intuition that it was going to be a girl. So the last few weeks of my... Yeah, everyone's laughing. Everyone's laughing. Um, I have three sons and a grandson. So obviously, don't come to me for intuition. So, uh, So I spent the last few weeks of my pregnancy making this softest pink flannel. It was tiny pink rosebuds and it was flannel and I edged it in eyelet lace, this quilt, and hung it uh, just a few days before my due date, hung it on the side of the crib. Well, two days before my due date, I got up that morning and walked into the nursery, saw that uh, pink blanket hanging on the side of the crib and had a moment of clarity. This could be a boy, and I have a pink blanket. So I raced out the front door, got in my car, went to the fabric store, found the same fabric with tiny blue rosebuds on it, and frantically, I think I stayed up for the next two nights making um, a a blue blanket with blue rosebuds on it, and that was probably what sent me into labor two days later because I... Didn't stop. And thank goodness I did that because, as I said, it was a boy and I went on to have um, three boys. <coughs> okay, now, Wendy, I'm going to have to ask for water. It's a, it's a cardinal rule to never come up here without water, and Lynn and I have both come up here without it. 
As we finish looking at Peter's letter today, we're not going to be talking about what mothers do while they wait for their babies, but we're going to be talking about what all of us and what Peter's readers, his audience in the first century church, should be doing while we wait for that amazing day that we've been talking about the last few weeks, while we wait for our Lord to return. And Peter wants us not to depend on our intuition while we wait to kind of make up what we're going to do while we wait. He doesn't want us to end up with a pink blanket when we really need a blue blanket. So he is going to give us the truth here in chapter 5 of what believers are to do as they wait for Christ's return so that we can live that out each and every day today. So you're already in chapter 5. Let's find out what we should be doing while we wait. Let me read verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You know, it's not really surprising to me that Peter follows up his words about suffering in chapters 3 and 4 that we've talked about with Lynn last week with words for the leadership of the church. Because a church that has people in it that are suffering are going to need a good leadership. And as he addresses them here in verse 1, Peter reminds them of what he knows to be true from his own personal experience Peter has personally witnessed the suffering of Christ. And he knows that even for the Savior, life in this world is going to involve pain. But along with the suffering of Christ, Peter has also witnessed the transfiguration of Christ on the mountaintop. So he knows what we're all waiting for. He knows without a doubt the glory that's going to be revealed when Christ returns. He's seen that glory, and he waits expectantly for it again. So in these four verses, I think we see Peter get intimate and personal with these readers. And it almost feels like to me like he leans in a little bit close, like you do a group of comrades or close friends that... He knows that these are going to be the men that are responsible for governing and guiding and loving the church while we wait here. And he puts his arms around their shoulders, so to speak. And he says to them, friends, fellow elders, I appeal to you. Now, as an apostle, Peter could have simply given them orders to carry out as elders in the church Because as an apostle, he had that authority in the church. In fact, he begins this letter, if we turned back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the very first lines of the letter are Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had the authority to give these men orders. But you know, throughout this whole chapter, we can feel Peter doing something pretty remarkable. He's not remembering the authority that he has as an elder here, What he's remembering is his time with his friend and his um, personal Savior, his Lord Jesus Christ, as he writes. 
And Peter's experience with Jesus when he walked on this earth had always been intimate and personal. It had never been about Jesus giving them orders to carry out. It had been about a relationship. Jesus had led them and taught them and lived with them in a deeply personal way. And Peter follows that example of intimacy here as he appeals to those that are going to lead the church while they wait. Fellow elders. We can also see the influence of Peter's personal relationship with Jesus reflected in verse 2 as he writes to his fellow elders, those he wants to relate to on a personal level. He says, be shepherds of God's flock. Not because you must, gentlemen, but because you are willing. Peter had heard these words from Jesus' own lips. John 21:15 on your verse sheet. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. He had also heard him say in John 10:14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. It had finally crystallized for Peter somewhere along the way that his love for Jesus was not about mere words. It wasn't about those passionate declarations that we had heard from Peter before the crucifixion. But real love for Jesus would be manifested by taking care of his sheep, the sheep that Jesus considered to be his own, the sheep that Jesus was willing to sacrifice for with his very life. So Peter puts his arms around his fellow elders here in these verses, and I think he's hearing those words of his Savior etched in his mind, and he's passing on to all of us and to the church throughout the ages how elders should truly care for their churches while we wait for Christ's return. In verses 2 and 3 here, Peter tells them, lead as shepherds who know the flock belongs to another. It belongs to this chief shepherd. They should lead, not because they have to, but because they love the chief shepherd. They should lead, not because they will gain from it. There should be no money involved. Rather, they should lead the church with such great care as shepherds of God's flock. Because if they love the Lord, they love his sheep, and they can do nothing less. I know I've told you all this story before. I did not become a believer until I was 26 years old, and I accepted Christ one night after randomly, very randomly, reading a simple gospel presentation and commentary. I didn't know that night that I was supposed to pray a certain prayer. I just knew that what I had read about Jesus was the truth. And the next morning, I had two desires, two overwhelming desires that I could not have stopped myself from. And they were to buy a Bible and read it and to find a church and be a part of it. I did not know that those were good things to do, that the Bible would tell me um, that is what I should do. I just knew that I had fallen in love with the Savior the night before and I could do nothing else. 
Love compelled me that morning, and Peter wants his fellow elders to serve as shepherds, not out of duty, but out of an eagerness, because they too have fallen in love with the Savior, and they can do nothing less. Shepherds should always be compelled by love. Now Peter, as he's telling them here, the good ways to shepherd because you love the chief shepherd also gives them the three pitfalls of shepherding that we need to be aware of here in verses 2 and 3. And he tells them, don't shepherd out of guilt, men. Don't shepherd out of guilt. And you know, we all have a tendency to do that, particularly when we're called into leadership or we see things that need to be done. Someone says, you should do it. And you think, oh, all right, I'll do it. And then you lead out of guilt. You shepherd out of guilt. He says, don't shepherd out of greed. In other words, no one should take this position thinking, you know, it'll be a great thing for my business if people think I'm an elder in my church. Or maybe God will give me an inheritance. We cannot shepherd out of greed. And finally, we can't shepherd out of power just because we really like the fact that we can order people around or make decisions that other people have to live by. The pitfalls of shepherding are guilt and greed and power. And Peter warns them against it here. He says, but in spite of those pitfalls, I want you to do it because you love the one who has entrusted you with his sheep. And when you lead them, gentlemen, out of love for him, you will be an example to them, an example of love and care and protection and certainly sacrifice. Now, Peter knows firsthand what it's like to disappoint the Lord Jesus. He knows what it's like to stand in front of him and realize that there's something that you have failed in. And he does not want his fellow elders to have that experience when they finally meet the Savior face to face. And so he points out to them that the faithful, in verse 4, those that love him and take care of the sheep entrusted to them will be rewarded by Jesus when they return. Now, we don't know specifically what types of crowns... We don't know specifically what the crown of glory that Peter is talking about here. You know, there are several crowns mentioned as rewards throughout the New Testament. Uh, An imperishable crown is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9. A crown of rejoicing is the one that we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 2 a few weeks ago. A crown of righteousness is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4. You may want to go back and look those up at some point in time. And it's possible, and I have to tell you that theologians are all over the map deciding whether these are metaphorical crowns. But it's possible that they are metaphorical crowns since... The biblical writers describe them in figurative language rather than literal language, such as gold or silver. Um, But as Lynn said last week, there are a few things we're going to have to wait for Jesus for to really know about. So whether these are metaphorical crowns or literal crowns, we don't know. But we do know that Peter wants his fellow elders to realize that if they are faithful as they shepherd God's flock, One day, Jesus will reward them with a glory that will never fade, never fade. Now, as women in the room today, uh, we still need to take serious note of what Peter says here for a couple of reasons. We may not serve as elders in the church, and most churches, um, there are a few churches that do have women as elders, but many churches do not. Regardless of that, we need to take note for a couple of reasons. One is because as women, we want to be a part of a church that we know 
what elders should look like according to the scriptures. We want to be able to hold up passages of scriptures to our elders like a mirror and have it be the reflection that we see when our elders look in the mirror. Elders, we want to know that our elders who have um, their motive is love for the Savior. We want to have elders who are examples to the flock, who are not motivated by guilt or greed or power. As women, we need to be aware of that and to take note of that, of our church leadership. But secondly, as women, we are going to serve in leadership in a variety of um, capacities in the church. There are many of you today that sit here that, in fact, we have 50 small group shepherds in the room today, and many others of you serve in leadership in the church in a variety of uh, capacities. These are great principles for everyone in leadership, and we as women should take note of them, that we should be exactly these kind of shepherds also when we shepherd other women. We should be motivated by love for this chief shepherd so that we can do nothing less than serve willingly and serve eagerly as our motive. So take note of them for those reasons. Let's keep reading. Let's read verses 5 through 7 together. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter turns his attention here away from the shepherds and on to the sheep. Now, the literal translation of the Greek here is actually younger ones, not younger men. It includes women as well as men. But because Peter is contrasting these verses with the four verses um, in front of it, you always want to look at context when you study the scriptures. More than likely, he had men on his mind as he was writing, and that's why most of our translations say young men. Regardless, it is the younger generation in the church that he's concerned with here as he uses that word that we all love, submission. Submission. And the intent here is well spelled out as he says to the younger generation, both then and now, these are timeless principles Peter is giving us, willingly place yourself under the authority of older leaders. Now, I don't think Peter's intention here was to start a generational war. But, you know, this is an interesting instruction in light of today's Western culture that our churches are a part of. It's not really, if you think about it, politically correct in our culture to submit to someone just because they are older than you are. In fact, our Western culture is almost upside down when it comes to that, don't you think? Who has trouble getting a job today? If you're out of work and you're going for a job, who has trouble? The younger man or the 55-year-old man? Isn't that interesting? Uh, It's our 55-year-old guys that say, nobody's going to hire me because I'm 55, instead of thinking, wow, everyone is going to want me because I've got wisdom and experience to offer. We have a youth-driven culture. In fact, it's interesting, all of us in the room today um, probably strive to look younger, to dress a little bit younger, to um, uh, have hairstyles that are stylish and look a little bit 
younger because that gives us um, some respect in our culture today if we look younger rather than looking older. Marketing and advertising all go for youthful looks and youthful bucks. So Peter's advice here is counterculture for our Western world churches. On the first trip that I took to Africa with our team of teachers, women teachers here from Christ Chapel in 2004, the translator uh, and pastor that was with us um, took us across the street from where we were uh, teaching the women to a huge open marketplace. And there were all sorts of sights and sounds and smells of Africa there. And we asked him uh, if it was okay if we took pictures. And he said, sure, you can take pictures. But after we took a couple of pictures... All of a sudden, there was this angry young man that began to follow us and get in our faces and shout at us and kind of scared us all to death, actually. But the uh, pastor that was with us was a very tall, big, stately man in his 50s, and he stopped, and he got right in this young man's face um, and said, um, we didn't know what he was saying. He spoke in Swahili. But whatever he said, the man left immediately. And when we got back to the hotel, we said, what did you say that made him, that young guy, run off? And he said, and this is exactly what he said, he said, I told him, I am Baba, which is Swahili for elder. You must leave. Uh, He explained that in his country, the young people still respected and obeyed their Africas, that that was, uh, their elders in Africa, that was tradition in Africa. But he said, sadly, as the Western culture had creeped in, that was changing. Peter is giving young believers here advice that may not be politically correct in our culture, but it's sound advice for the health and the unity and the strength of the church as we wait for Christ's return. The church will benefit from young believers who show their reverence for the Savior, their reverence for the Savior, Maybe not their reverence for their elders, but their reverence for the Savior by their willingness to submit to those who have been given the responsibility of leadership in the church. Paul affirms our need to submit to one another, not simply younger to older, but to submit to one another in Ephesians 5 on your verse sheet, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, if you're the younger person in the room today which we all want to be, don't we all think, didn't you all think I was talking to you when I said, if you're the younger person in the room today, submitting to older leaders in the church seems hard. And I agree with you, it does seem hard because um, I want to say to the younger generation, you are, you are the future of the church and you are the creative vitality of the church. You're um, really what gives us our energy. But you can take heart that Jesus understands, even though you are the future of the church and you're the creative vitality of the church, Jesus understands that this may not always be an easy thing to do, to submit to the will of someone else, because that's exactly what he did when he submitted to the will of the Father and went to the cross. Matthew 26:39 says, and this is Jesus talking, My Father... If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but you will. There is no doubt that Jesus himself understands submission born out of reverence, and he is our example. 
Now, I don't think it's any mistake that Peter moves very quickly here from the younger generation submitting to the church leaders to the topic of humility as a suitable wardrobe for everyone in the church. Because, you know, it is pride that will trip up the younger generation in their efforts to submit, but it is also pride that trips up the older generation of church leaders and will keep them from being the kind of leaders that invite submission. It's true that humility and submission go hand in hand. You will never see someone submit willingly if they have not humbled themselves first. And you will never see someone who's humble that's unwilling to submit. Or almost never, I should say. I can see Peter once again here. We look at Peter and I can see him remembering his time with Jesus as he writes these words on on humility and gives all of us in the church a charge to wear humility as a garment that we willingly put on. Peter has seen someone wear humility before. John 13, 3 through 5. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. It's right here that Peter had his first experience with witnessing humility as a wardrobe, and it was worn by his beloved Jesus. Humility is a garment that prepares all of us, not only for submission, but certainly it prepares us for service as well. True humility is not only attractive, but Peter reminds us right here in verse 5 as he quotes Proverbs 3.34 that humility also wins us God's favor and acceptance. Now we can't forget, as we read verse 6 here, where he talks about humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, that Peter is really writing to those people who have been significantly persecuted and who are, as they read his letter, suffering under persecution for their faith. And I think that it must be difficult for some of, those, some of them to read these words about humbling themselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that faith in this very God has come at a great cost in their lives. But Peter knows that, and he himself not only has already suffered, but he is going to suffer again. And he ensures, assures his readers and all of us today that even in the midst of suffering, we can trust that God will prevail in our lives. And he says to us in these verses, which I think is so interesting, the concept that humility is really like a river that lets God's grace flow into our lives. Humility is like a river that lets God's grace flow into our lives. And when we humble ourselves under God's hand and that river of grace flows into our lives, then through it, God will lift us up. And through it, he will bring deliverance. Not in our time, but as Peter says right here, in God's own timing. Luke 14:11 says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is a river that lets grace flow into our lives. And James 4.10 says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
And finally in verse 7, Peter shares not a new command. It is not a new command when he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter has heard Jesus say the same thing in Matthew 6. You may want to turn back there later and look at it. But let me paraphrase it for you. Peter has heard Jesus say in Matthew 6, Why are you worried about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear? Your Father in heaven knows what you need. He provides clothing for the lilies of the field. He provides food for the birds of the air. Are you not more valuable than they are? Peter's words here in verse 7 about casting our cares on um, the Lord are not a new thought or a new command. He's heard Jesus say it before. What they really are, I believe, is an explanation of what it looks like to humble oneself. What humility before the sovereign Lord truly looks like. Of how humility and submission walk hand in hand. Humbling ourselves before God doesn't look like groveling Um, before him or repeating words about how great he is and how little we are. It is truly humbling ourselves before God when we entrust ourselves to him. It is humbling ourselves before God when we trust our families to him. It is humbling ourselves before God when we give every care in our life to him, like Vicki talked about in her praise. When we make out that list, throw it back to God. That's humbling ourselves before God. When we submit everything in our lives to him, that's humility. And we can do it, Peter says here in verse 7, because we have confidence that he cares for us, that he's concerned about our welfare. Psalm 55, 22 affirms that. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. As we wait for our Savior to return, we can give him our lives in humility, knowing that he cares for us. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Dr. George Morrison was a uh, physician and a missionary of sorts in China at the turn of the century, in the late 1890s and early 1900s. And he said this, God does not make his children carefree in order that they be careless. And I think Peter agrees with Dr. Morrison on that because he moves right here from entrusting everything in our lives about ourselves and our troubles to God because we have confidence in him to telling us, but you've got an enemy. You've got a significant enemy. Peter understands what it means to come under attack by the enemy. Once again, I think he's reflecting back to his own time with our Lord Jesus. Luke 22. Simon, this is Jesus talking. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what Peter is doing here. He is writing this passage to strengthen us, to do exactly what Jesus told him to do in Luke 22. He's strengthening us um, because we do have an enemy. And he gives us three responses to Satan in this passage that I think we would do well to take note of. The first response he tells us is that we must respect 
the danger that Satan is in our lives. Now, my translation says self-control. If you have a new American standard, it probably says be of sober spirit, which gives us a little bit more of an idea about the fact that we should respect the danger that's in front of us. Um, Warren Wiersbe tells the story of watching an electrician work on a huge electrical panel at his church that carried many thousands of volts of electricity in the wires. And he asked the electrician how he could work so calmly on something that was so deadly, that one, one touching the wrong thing and the electrician would be toast. The electrician smiled and said, well, the first thing you have to do is respect it. Then you can handle it. If Peter had respected the danger that Satan can present in our lives um, or taken Satan more seriously, he might not have slept that night in the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus had warned him to watch and pray so that he would not be taken into temptation. Matthew 26:41. It's not on your verse sheet. Let me read it to you. This is Jesus saying to Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus has gone into the garden and pray and left um, Peter and the other disciples there to watch and pray. When he comes back out, they're sleeping. And he says to them again, Be careful. Watch and pray. Temptation awaits you. Paul says this about the danger that Satan presents to us in 2 Corinthians 11. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the certain serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan is a real and dangerous predator, not that we need to be consumed with, but just that we need to respect the danger that is out there. The second thing Peter tells us is that we should recognize recognize Satan's schemes, or rather be on alert for his attacks. If Peter had been on alert for the attack of the devil that Jesus had already warned him about the night Jesus was arrested, he might have remembered these words that Jesus spoke to him and not gone on to deny Christ three times in the courtyard of the high priest. Matthew 26, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But, declares Peter, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. You know, Jesus had waved a red flag for Peter, said to him, be on alert. And Peter ignored it. Just as these words of Jesus were meant to be a red flag to help Peter stay alert, the word of God is what truly helps us stay alert, ladies, to the devil's schemes in our life and the temptations that are out there. You know, Satan is a master counterfeiter of the truth. His desire is to get all of us to doubt the truth, to deny the truth, to disregard the truth, or perhaps even disobey the truth that God has clearly told us. You know, if you go into a convenience store frequently and you give them a $20 bill, they take out that yellow pin and they mark on it to see if it's counterfeit or not. The Word of God is our yellow pin, our protection to see if the things that we're thinking or believing or living out in our life are counterfeit schemes of the devil or are they from the Word of God. The Word of God has great power in it to protect us. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing 
the soul and the spirit the joints and the marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart we have a way to de- detect the counterfeiter and it is the word of god and finally peter warns us that we must resist the word resist here means to defend yourself not to attack because the truth is satan's already been defeated that's what jesus did at the cross we don't have to defeat him we just have to defend ourselves from his attacks and our job um, is to do that with the weapons of faith that christ in his victory has provided for us you looked at this in your small group ephesians ephesians 6 13 through 17 tells us the weapons that we have at our defense so that we can resist the devil. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ladies, we have what we need to resist. We simply must determine to make good use of our resources as we wait for Christ's return. You know, Peter was alone um, when the devil attempted to devour him like a roaring lion um, in the Garden of Gethsemane and then again in the courtyard of the priests. And so I think that's why he says here to all of us as believers in these verses, um, you are not alone. There are believers all over the world that are suffering like you and that come under the attack of the evil one. He wants us to know that we have each other. He wants us to know that we can be in our small groups and pray for each other. He wants us to know that um, the community of believers is going to be there so that we won't fall into temptation, so that we'll be able to respect the danger that's out there, so that we will be able to resist. Both Peter and James give all believers who face this um, threat from the evil one the same plan for success. And that plan for success is submission plus resistance. And it is in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you know it's important that we get that right. That first we submit ourselves to God. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand then we will be able to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Warren Wiersbe had an interesting observation in his commentary about Peter's personal experience with Satan and his advice to us. Wiersbe says, Before we can stand firm before Satan, we must bow before God. Peter resisted the Lord and ended up submitting to Satan. I can imagine that it broke Peter's heart to realize that had been the case in his life. And he wants better for us. He wants better for us. Let's finish. Uh, Let's read verses 10 through 14. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power 
forever and ever. Amen. Without the Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying you that this, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter finishes his letter um, on a very, very positive note. And he gives us our final and what I think may be our most significant focus as we wait for Christ's return. And that focus is hope. Hope. He finishes here with hope. Hope for his readers and hope for us. He reminds his readers and all of us who wait for that glorious day that God truly does know what he is doing. And, you know, that's an important thing to remember when you're suffering and being persecuted, that life is not out of control. He reminds them here, you know, God knows what he is doing. Because of that, we can wait with hope. We can hope because we have God's grace, which is sufficient in all circumstances. We can hope because we know our future. How many people, if you stopped them on the street out there today would say, and ask them, do you know what your future is? Most of them would just look at you like, are you nuts? We know our future. So we can hope while we wait because we know our future. We have been called, Peter says right here, into eternal glory in Christ. And finally, we can hope because no matter what we suffer now, We can know that it's for a season. He tells us in verse 10, it's for a little while. It is for a season. A season that God in his power will help us endure. A season that God in his power is going to use for our good. He's not going to waste our suffering. We can always have hope in that. And a season that's going to prove God's power, as Peter mentions it in verse 10. God's power is always made perfect in our weakness because in his power he's going to restore us. In God's power he's going to strengthen us. And in God's power he's going to make each and every one of us steadfast. So what should we do while we wait? We should do nothing less than hope in our God. Psalm 42:11. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Pray with me. Lord, we do know our future. We know that you are a God of great power. And Lord, um, I pray that each one of us here today would wait with hope. Hope not in ourselves. Hope not in our bank accounts. Hope not in even our frail bodies. But hope in you who are great and good and glorious. And Father, I thank you for your word, which keeps us on the right path. And I thank you for these ladies that love you. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.